Good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17? I was telling first service, if you've only been coming for a few weeks, you might think that there is only one chapter in John, and it's chapter 17. That is not true. It's a vicious rumor that got started, I think, in that section over there, but that's not true. Uh, but anyways, if you're new with us, welcome. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We are in what I think is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, chapters in the Bible. It's a very intimate prayer that Jesus is praying to his Father hours before the cross. And uh, it's a very, I've called this series, With Jesus Behind the Veil. We're getting a peek into the Holy of Holies as Jesus is communing with his Father. Now, as we have been studying Jesus' prayer to his Father on the night before his crucifixion, something we need to understand, it is a prayer that he prayed with his disciples standing there. With his disciples standing there. Why did he pray this very intimate prayer to his Father in their presence? Well, I think one reason was so that they would know and understand what was most important to him with regard to their spiritual welfare and the kingdom of God going forward. But I think probably the big reason he prayed this prayer in their presence was because these were things he wanted to be the focus of their prayers for one another after he returned to his father and they continued the work of the kingdom in his absence. So uh, I think this is a very important section. And uh, this prayer uh, in chapter 17 is divided up. I, I've divided it up. I think it's pretty obvious. Most people have divided it up into three main parts. Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 to 5. Jesus prays for his disciples, six, uh, verses 6 through 19. And Jesus prays for all believers, verses 20 to 26. Now, we are currently in that second main part of this prayer where Jesus is praying for his disciples, those that had been with him for the last three and a half years. This covers verses 6 through 19. And again, this section of scripture contains what Jesus was most concerned about for his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And um, this prayer, part of the prayer in verses 6 through 19, was made up also of three things. First of all, that the Father would use them. Jesus is praying that the Father would use his disciples to bring Jesus glory, verses 9 and 10. That Jesus, excuse me, that the Father would keep them from various things that we studied in verses 11 through 13. You can go online and check it out. Pull the notes on it, at least if you just like to have the notes so you can look over it quickly. And then this morning we come to the final section of this second main section, again covering verses 6 through 19. This final section, verses 14 through 19, that the Father would sanctify them. Now, hold on to that. You might think, I don't know, it's not really resonating with me too much. Hang in there. This is a very important concept, and we want to look at it. But let's read verses 14 to 19, where Jesus prayed, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, 
but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, guys, because it's all one prayer, um, even though we've divided it into sections, we can't really dissect them cleanly from what comes before and after. So this really goes in hand, verses 14 to 19, with, with something Jesus prayed for them in verse 11, where he said to his father, I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world that I may, excuse me, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And I'm revealing a little bit from last time, but notice the emphasis on the word holy. Holy. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. The word holy comes from the same Greek root as the word sanctify comes from and means to be separated or set apart. To be separated or set apart. By praying that the Father would, listen, keep his disciples and then emphasizing the fact that the Father is holy, well, I believe it indicates that Jesus was praying that the Father would keep his disciples holy as he himself is holy. The Father would keep Jesus' disciples holy even as the Father is holy. It reminds us of something Peter admonished the people of God in his first epistle. I'll read it to you. Uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 16, where Peter said, Therefore, gird, talking to believers, of course, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, that's those things you did before you got saved, obviously. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy, God speaking. Now, in saying this, Peter had in mind the command that God gave his people under the Mosaic Covenant, there in the wilderness, uh, Leviticus 19, verse 2, where God said to the people through Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Excuse me. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Look, God never changes. We know that. Okay, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible tells us, right? God never changes, which means as he was holy under the Old Covenant, as he was holy in Old Testament times, he is still holy today. He's still holy today, right? Uh, under the New Covenant, uh, which prompted Peter through the Holy Spirit to command us as believers in Jesus Christ living in New Testament times to be holy as God is holy. This was not an Old Testament command that expired. This is something that God wants from his people throughout all periods of human history, right? Old and new. Just as I, I just said that the word holy means to be set apart. We talk about God's holiness and man's holiness. Um, in some ways they're different, but they are mostly 
the same thing, only obviously God is different from us. What am I saying? Well, when the Bible talks about God being holy, it means that God is completely, listen, separate or set apart from the fallen world system of which Satan is in control, 1 John 5.19. The whole world lies under the control of the wicked one. But God is not a part of that at all. He is completely separate from, set apart from the evil world system. Even though he created the world, he didn't create the evil world system. That was something that the devil brought about. And God, although he is the creator of all the physical universe, he is not subject to or a part of the evil that we see going on around us. John introduces his uh, first epistle in chapter 1, verse 5, by saying God is light and in him is what? No darkness at all. That was John's way of saying God is completely other than, separate from what's going on in the world. People want to look at the world and blame God, right? If he was so good and loving, why are kids getting killed in school? This is not the world God created for us to live in. This is a product of man's rebellion, man's fall, a world God never wanted us to, to be living in. Why doesn't he do something about it? He is. The big part of that was 2,000 years ago when God sent his only begotten son to die for our sins. That whoever believes in him would not go to hell but have everlasting life. And Jesus promised I'm coming back someday. Watch for me. The signs will be there. And when I come back, I'm going to fix this world. I'm going to recreate it. It's going to be a world like I intended the world to be. I'm going to be king. And I am a righteous and loving king. And so on. But also, guys, God's holiness means not that he's separate from the evil going on around us in this world. Of course he is. But that he is completely separate from his creation in general. The theologians call this transcendence. Transcendence. Which means that God is above, that he is separate from, not subject to, or in any way connected with this creation, with his creation, in the sense of being one with it. I bring this out because there are many people today who believe in pantheism. Pantheism literally means all is God. All is God which is a belief system that teaches that everything in the physical world is one with God. There are those who believe in pantheism, those who believe in pantheism, those like Hindus, New Agers, and others, believe that the God force, let me stop, pantheism teaches that God is not a personal being, he is an impersonal, or it is an impersonal force. Those that, you know, the force be with you, Right? May the, may the force be, getting off the subject, but uh, what's his name, uh, Lucas, uh, who created the Star Wars movies, George Lucas? He was really into this. He said that he created those movies because he saw himself as the Billy Graham of the force. I like the movies, but I'm just telling you, okay? The people that produced it had an agenda, and they were being con led by Satan, to promote a teaching that the Bible absolutely rejects. 
But those who believe in pantheism believe that the God force flows through everything and everyone, which means all is God. So this God force right, flows through the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the ewes and the me's, everything. And because the God force is flowing through every material thing, both animate and inanimate, it means everything is connected by this God force. It's all one in a sense, especially people who they say are part of a collective consciousness, whereby we're all connected by the God force. And therefore, if we come together and we focus our mental ability uh, on change, we can create a cosmic leap in the evolutionary process that will catapult man into a new age. This is, I'm not going to get into that anymore than I just did. But, but just so you understand, right, what's going on out there. Um, but the idea is that um, this, this God force is flowing through everything. Therefore, everything is a part of God. Therefore, all is God, pantheism. Now, when the Bible talks about um, God's people being holy, it's the same basic idea. It means that we are to live our lives separately from this fallen world system we are currently living in, but must never be a part of. Living in the world, but being separate from the world. That is the great challenge of the Christian life. In other words, we are to be living separately from the world's values, the world's actions, of course, and the world's philosophies and ideologies. We are to live our lives in this fallen world as lights. People of God who have been called out of the world yet still live in the world, we are, are now the people of God. We are to be, our lives are to be used exclusively for God's glory and not our own glory or the glory of the world for sure. When you talk about holiness, you know, personal holiness or churches that teach that their people should be holy, oftentimes they define it with a long list of do's and don'ts, more, more don'ts than do's. But maybe you've gone to one of these churches. And, uh, you know, back in earlier times, back in the 60s and 70s, uh, these churches were big on how long a, guy, a man could wear his hair, how short a, a skirt a woman could wear. Uh, many condemned going to the movies. That was evil. Dancing, that was evil. Of course, smoking and drinking, you were on your way to hell if you did those things. Many people had a, and still have a very long list as to what constitutes holiness. Maybe we can better understand the concept by looking at something from the Old Testament where God, when he had Israel build the tabernacle, which is what they carried around the wilderness for 40 years before coming into the promised land. And then eventually as they got into the promised land, God eventually led Solomon to build a permanent structure we call the temple. In the worship of God in the tabernacle and temple, there were certain implements that were to be used for the worship of God. There were shovels and pans and forks and cups. These were all used in the worship of God, and God called them holy. What does that mean? It means they were dedicated to God. They were only to be used in the worship of God. Remember how that um, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, got himself into trouble, right? when they conquered Israel and they brought back this stuff from the temple to Babylon. And at one point he's in chapter 5 of Daniel, he's throwing a party. 
And he says, well, go get the, uh, the, the cups from the temple of the Jewish God, and let's bring them and use them to party with. You know, alcohol and wine, and, you know, and so as they're carrying on this big pagan party, a hand comes out of the cup, writes on the wall, Miney, miney, tackle you farzin. Let me give you a loose paraphrase. Kid, you're not measuring up and you are out. That night, Babylon fell and Nebuchadnezzar uh, and Belshazzar was killed. That wasn't the only reason Babylon got judged, but you understand. These were things that were to be used exclusively in the worship of God. They were dedicated to him. Now, let's bring it over into our lives. When we gave our heart to Christ, God took us out of the world, separated us from the world, and said, now you belong to me. I want your life to be lived exclusively for my glory. I want you to be dedicated to me. I don't want you to be living for me and the world and yourself and everyone else. No, I want you to be living for me, for my glory. That's what holiness really is. If God leads you to stop doing this or that because you feel like it honors God, then do it. I, I'm not into lists. I'll let the Holy Spirit convict you about what you should and shouldn't be doing. But I know one thing, if you're going to be holy, you've got to give your no compromises. Make a heartfelt commitment to God to be used by him for his glory, right? Now, God wanted to stress this, this principle so much, the principle of holiness, how important it was to him that his people walk in it. He wanted to stress this so much that he actually created an entire feast that spoke of it, that spoke of it. We know that in Leviticus chapter 23, we read about the seven feasts of Moses. Actually, there's the seven feasts of God who gave them to Israel through Moses. But there's seven feasts. You can study those on your own. But um, God instituted a feast among these seven that reinforced the importance of holiness uh, now that his people had been redeemed. A feast God named the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread comes directly after the Feast of Passover. You really can't understand the one without the other. In fact, in Jewish culture, as you read your, your, the Gospels, sometimes they're just lumped into one heading. So Passover, the Jews, the Feast of Passover was there. That means Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because in the Jewish mind, they were connected. Sometimes it'll read, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was near. And then it starts talking about the Passover. They had to prepare for the, for the Passover meal. Wait, wait. The, the Jewish people saw them as being together, okay? Even though they were separate feasts. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread comes directly after the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover, God uh, talked about in Leviticus 23, verses 4 and 5. He said, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Here's the first one. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Passover begins at sundown on the 14th of Nisan and goes until sundown the following day. God put the Jewish people on a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. Their day started at sunset, right? 
Why did God do that? No doubt in part because so many pagan cultures around them worshipped the sun. And so to make them separate and different, he had them put them on a lunar calendar, just so you know that. But uh, Nizon corresponds to mid-March through mid-April on our calendar. Nizon, just, for, just to throw out a little side information, Nizon is the first month of the Jewish, listen, religious calendar. They also have a secular calendar, which begins with Rosh Hashanah, which is the start of the Jewish New Year, comparable to our New, our New Year Day. See, New Year Day, starting our New Year, January 1st. Well, they had a day that officially started their secular year, Rosh Hashanah, and uh, it took place in the month of Tishri, which corresponds to our mid-September through mid-October on our calendar. Okay? Now, in Leviticus, guys, God really didn't define what Passover is because it was already well known to the people of Israel seeing, listen, they had recently celebrated the very first Passover just a few months earlier. But to find out what Passover is all about, we really need to turn to Exodus chapter 12, if you would, where God first instituted Passover. Exodus 12, we'll pick it up in verse 5. Where God says to this people, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now you realize, guys, there was actually only one actual Passover. That was 3,500 years ago, the night before they made their exodus out of Egypt. All the other Passovers since then have been, listen, memorial feasts commemorating this one and only Passover. If we could sum up Passover in one word, it would be the word redemption. Now again, I do want to focus on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but you can't see the one without the other. Passover precedes it. It's important that we at least touch on Passover before we get to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so I'll say again, we could sum up Passover in one word. It would be the word redemption. Guys, Passover is the Feast of Redemption, celebrating and commemorating how God delivered His people from the bondage of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb. Jesus in his earthly life not only observed the feast of Passover, listen, he fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. As Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. When John the Baptist first introduced Jesus to the people of Israel, he did so by saying, as recorded in John chapter 1, verse 29, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus was the Passover Lamb of God, a male, of course, without spot, in other words, without original sin. He was virgin born. Sin passes from the father to the children. He didn't have an earthly father. He had a heavenly father and an earthly mother. So Jesus was uh, born without spot. A lamb had to be without spot or blemish in the old covenant. If it was going to be a sacrifice for God, Jesus, of course, as the lamb of God, was without spot, without original sin. He was also without blemish, which means acquired sin. He never sinned during the course of his entire earthly life. Whose blood, when applied to the house of our hearts by faith, causes the judgment of God to pass over us. We're not going to hell because of what Jesus did just as it passed over each literal house in Egypt where the blood of the literal lamb was applied. And so once again, if we could sum up Passover in a single word, it would be the word redemption. The feast of Passover was commanded by God to be observed on the 14th day of Nisan, where the feast of unleavened bread was to start on the 15th of Nisan and run for seven consecutive days. Leviticus 23, verses 6 and 7 talks about this, where God said, On the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Now guys, to understand the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we need to first understand what leaven is. What leaven is. Since we buy our bread mostly from the supermarkets, uh, and don't bake our own bread. Uh, this is something that we have to kind of, you know, uh, study so that we understand what was going on, all right? What is leaven? Well, leaven is dough that yeast has permeated through, resulting in fermentation and causing the dough to rise. A piece of this fermented dough called the starter piece was always held back from the previous batch of dough that it had been prepared for the next day's baking of bread. And before the dough was baked, a small piece of leavened dough was pulled off, wrapped in a dry cloth, and kept in a dry place. In the evening, when they made a new batch of dough for the next day, so in the evening, a new batch of dough was prepared, and at that time, that little piece of leavened starter dough was taken and kneaded into that new batch of dough. The new batch was covered, and then it was left to sit all night where it would rise and be ready the next morning to be then baked into bread. They always baked their bread in the morning for the day because they had to let it rise all night. Okay? Pretty simple. Well, how does this relate to me, Pastor? Okay, wonderful little story about the leaven. Well, how does this relate to my life? Well, in a very real way. Leaven is always a type of sin or evil in the Bible. Why? Because it spreads like sin, consumes like sin, fermentation is a form of digestion, and puffs up like sin. It causes the dough to rise. Paul said that a little leaven would permeate an entire lump of dough until all the dough was leavened. Just like a little sin 
if not dealt with, will spread through a life, a family, a church, or even a nation until everything is corrupted and consumed by it. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and the beginning of verse 7. Now he's talking to a church that let, had let sin permeate into their fellowship. They weren't doing anything about it, uh, and it was spreading, and it was corrupting. And so Paul uses a very um, uh, simple illustration that they were all very familiar with about leaven introduced into a lump of dough, permeates through the whole lump, causes, you know, causes it to become uh, fermented, you know, digested, consumed, and, um, and puffs it up. He said in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, your glorying is not good. Here they were thinking they were so spiritual, even though they were letting sin run rampant in their fellowship, right? Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven. He's talking about sin now. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be, I love this, a new lump. That's pretty fitting. We're all nothing but lumps. Saved by grace, but lumps. Since you are truly unleavened. Paul is drawing from the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's a rabbi. He understands these things, right? And he wasn't the only one, by the way, guys. When God commanded his people to rid their houses of leaven, in Exodus 12, verse 15, they understood the principle. They understood that if leaven spoke of sin, and they knew it did, then that which was unleavened spoke of holiness and purity. Now, what is the significance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread to us as Christians? Well, if Passover speaks of redemption, then the Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks of sanctification or holiness. Once again, the word sanctification literally means to be set apart. To be set apart by God or to God, yes, to be set apart by God from the world, set apart to God as his covenant people. It's also the Hebrew root that the word holy comes from. Here's the background. The children of Israel were enslaved down in Egypt. And through the blood of the Passover lamb, God delivered or he redeemed them from that bondage of Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea, which interestingly, Paul in the New Testament likens to water baptism. He's presenting a picture of something getting saved. Egypt, right? Coming, people of God coming out of Egypt, God brought them through the Red, redeemed them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, a form of water baptism. And what did he do? He led them directly to the base of Mount Sinai, right? And the first thing that God spoke to these people who were now, who were just newly redeemed from Egypt was, be holy for I am holy. Think about that. In other words, how you lived when you were slaves down in Egypt was one thing. But now that I have redeemed you out of Egypt, I want you to live a new kind of life. What kind of life, Lord? An unleavened life. An unleavened life. This applies to new believers. Once a person has been redeemed by the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, they have been redeemed out of the world system of which Egypt is a type. And God says to them, to us, be holy as I am holy. In other words, 
How you live when you were slaves of Satan living in the world in his kingdom, that was one thing. But now you belong to me. Now you are the children of God, members of the kingdom of God. And as such, I want you to live a new kind of life. What kind of life, Lord? An unleavened life. And, and, and let me just say this. For God to physically take the children of Israel out of Egypt was easy. He's God. But to take Egypt out of them, that was much, much harder. Same is true with us. God taking us out of the world at the moment of salvation was no problem. But taking the world out of us, not as easy. It's as somebody has said, salvation is the miracle of a moment. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. And by saying that, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we work and we do it. It's got to be a work of the Holy Spirit. But where we come in is we have the commitment. We have the love for God that allows him to take my life and say, it says to him, Lord, I want to be the person you want me to be. You've redeemed me out of the filth of that world that I used to belong to and live in and play in. I don't want that life anymore, Lord. I want to live a, a new life, a holy life. And I realize, Lord, only you can do that in my life. Having begun in the Spirit, you're not going to be made perfect in the flesh. You began in the Spirit when you got saved. You continue in the Spirit every day as you make a commitment to God, right? The just shall live by faith. It's an everyday commitment. Listen, it's very important that you realize that your, your spiritual life, your Christian life is going to be only as strong, only as uh, fruitful as you build into it. Those who work with computer, I had a guy years ago who was in our church and was a computer guy, and he said, actually, computers are dumb. What do you mean? Because they only give out what you program into them. And as the old saying goes, garbage in is gar equals garbage out, right? The idea is that, look, if you want to have a, a beautiful Christian walk with the Lord, it starts with commitment, like in your marriage. I mean, marriage is the miracle of a moment. You stand before God, family, uh, a minister, and you pledge your, your love for each other. You make your vows, and at that moment, you are married. It's the miracle of a moment. God makes you the two one. But now the hard work begins, right? Marriage might be the miracle of a moment, but you know, a happy marriage, a fruitful marriage, is the hard work of a lifetime. And that's because we have to, first of all, be committed to our spouse. We have, that's what we, we try to communicate that when they do, people do their vows, better or worse, sickness and health. Uh, whatever happens, I'm going to be by your side until death do us part. That's a commitment, right? People don't always live up to that commitment, but that's the idea. That we need to look at our marriages uh, in the sense that we are committed to each other, good, bad, whatever. We're going to stay by each other's side. Same is true in our marriage to Christ. It's a commitment. We have to be committed to God. We have to approach every single day of our walk with God with that commitment, with that love, with that fidelity. And when we do, the Holy Spirit will do what only He can do and conform us daily into the image of Jesus Christ, the goal of our Christian life, right? And something else that's very important, guys, to understand 
an important principle that the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us through these two back-to-back feasts. He wants us to understand that there is no gap of time between these two feasts, right? Passover, which spoke of redemption or salvation, uh, took place on the 14th of Nisan. And then starting immediately the next day and began the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which spoke of sanctification. Guys, the spiritual lesson the Lord wanted to teach his people, not just back then, but today, through these feasts. These two feasts backing up to each other with no gap of time between them. I don't think it's very um, difficult to understand what he wanted to communicate. And that is the moment you get saved you are to immediately begin living a new life for God. A sanctified, unleavened life, right? A life that is, listen, completely sanctified, completely set apart to Him. Remember that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was how many days? Seven. What's the number seven represent in the Bible? completeness so God is saying when you get saved when you are redeemed I want you to immediately begin to live a completely sanctified life for me I bring that out because there are some Christians who think that you get saved and then sometime down the road you get serious that God gives us kind of a probation period where we're still kind of messing with the world right so in our wild oats whatever you want to call it and it's okay because God understands. I, I've just been born again. I, I need a little time to grow out of the flesh and into the spirit. Well, God doesn't feel that way. You don't grow out of the flesh and into the spirit. I mean, yeah, okay, it does happen. But that's not God's original intent. You get saved and right away, you, the moment you get saved, you belong to God. And as such, he wants you and me to live a sanctified set apart from the world kind of life completely guys the most important thing we we need to concern ourselves with as we are waiting for the lord's coming for his church as we do the work he has committed us to do the most important thing we can concern ourselves with is living a life of sanctification and obedience to god this is his will for those who are his people you know you I've run into Christians who ask me, what's God's will for my life? They're wringing their hands with worry. I want to know God's will. Look, if you just open your Bible, it isn't that hard to figure out. I'll help you. I'll give you one passage. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Oh, Lord, what is your will for my life? Oh, I just want to know your will. Why about you open my word and it's on every page practically. You acted like I'm the Easter bunny hiding Easter eggs from you. Oh, you're getting warmer. Oh, no, no, you're ice cold. No, you're ice cold. Just go to the word, right? Here, what is God's will for my life? 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess possess his own or her own vessel, your physical bodies, in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Not like unbelievers. Verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, 
but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, not man's rules, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. All right, this is God's will for us, that we be holy, that we be sanctified. But how is this possible, living in such a corrupt world that we're living in these days? Well, there are several things we could talk about, but let's just keep with our passage. Because I think this is the main one. This is the main one. How do we live a sanctified life in a very ungodly world? Well, Jesus tells us through his prayer to the Father for his disciples. Again, verse 14. I have given them to, uh, excuse me, I have given them, my disciples, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Here it is. Your word is truth. Guys, if we were to sum up, and, and we should, and I'll do it right now, actually. If we sum up verses, to sum up the verses um, here, as Jesus is praying to his Father, what the main issue that he is praying about, he's asking the Father to give his disciples, then and now, of course, victory, so that we might overcome the world even as he himself had overcome the world. The word world is used 19 times in this prayer. That's a lot. It should be a red flag to tell us that the Lord is trying to communicate something very important. The word world is used 19 times in this prayer, and every time it appears, it's the Greek word cosmos. In this context, cosmos refers to the fallen world system that is controlled by the devil and which is in rebellion against God. Now, you remember that Jesus began to teach these guys one last time, starting in chapter 13. Remember in the upper room, right? They gathered for the Passover. And Jesus began to launch into one final teaching. We called it his farewell address. It was really a summation uh, of all he had basically taught the disciples before this point. Three and a half years of teaching he condenses into a single sermon because he wants to hit all the high points, all the things that were the most important. Look, he was only hours from the cross. He knew his death was looming. And when you're that close to death, you don't want to talk to people you love about uh, ridiculous, foolish uh, things, weather, sports, all that stuff. No, you want to pass along to them the things that are most important to you, the things that you probably uh, taught them and, and talked uh, uh, to them about over the course of your, of your time with them. So here Jesus is, hours before the cross, he is, uh, he is taking the most important things he communicated to his disciples. Before, while he was with them, now before the cross, he brings them up again. And guys, the, understand the teaching began in chapter 13. It officially ended in chapter 16. With the last verse of chapter 16, I'll read to you. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world as a cry of victory. 
No doubt he was looking forward to the cross, which even though he had not gone to the cross yet, technically, uh, his victory over the devil and the world and so on was so sure, he puts it in the past tense, which is what they did in the Greek language when something was an absolute certainty that had not come to pass yet, they would often put it in the past tense. We've talked about that, as Jesus does here. He's talking, I have overcome the world. And yet the cross was still hours ahead. But it was a done deal. He then proceeds to pray for his disciples in chapter 17. That we would be enabled by the Father to be, to be overcomers as well. Guys, throughout this chapter, the underlying idea or principle is that of spiritual warfare and victory. Spiritual warfare and victory. That is really at the heart of this prayer. He knows in just a little while he's going to send out his closest men, guys he loved with all his heart, into a world that was going to be hostile to them. He did say, I'm sending you out as, what, doves among, or was doves among serpents? Or lambs among wolves? Check it out. One of those two. I'm sending you, though, in a ho off into a hostile world to continue the work I've begun. We call it the Great Commission, right? He said in chapter 15, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you also. Uh, they're going to hate you because, like they hated me, you're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. That's where the world's going to hate you and persecute you. And he knew the God of this world was going to do everything he could in his power to kill these guys, shut them down, imprison them, pervert the message, bring in wolves among the sheep that would act like shepherds and pervert the message, the truth, right? But Jesus said in chapter 17, verse 14, I have given them your word, talking to his Father, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as not, I am not of the world, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Let me just say this in setting up next week's study, okay? Jesus came into this world, a world of darkness, as the light of God. As the light of God. In the scriptures, light and darkness are often used as metaphors. Light is often used in the scriptures to, re in the scriptures to represent God, holiness, and spiritual truth. Whereas darkness is often used in the scriptures to represent Satan, evil, and spiritual deception. Remember how John began his gospel. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, a title for Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was nothing made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. John tells us that the true light, Jesus Christ, invaded a world of darkness. Spiritual and moral evil. So that, and the light came into the darkness. A world full of lies. A world full of spiritual deception. And Jesus came into a world of darkness as the light, as the truth of God to light people's way back to God so they could find salvation, etc. But John says that the light Jesus Christ invaded a world of darkness 
so that people could know the truth and find their way back to God. And John makes it a point to say the darkness could not comprehend, or actually we could translate that, could not extinguish or overcome the light. Light is always more powerful than darkness. Always. The lies and deceptions of the devil are never a match for the truth of God. The word of God, what we're talking about, was Jesus came to this world to bring. He said this over and over again in his teachings. In John 8, 31 and 2, Jesus said to, the Jew, to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We always hear of people who were, grew up in a cult or some other false religious system. And we befriended them, and we started sharing the word with them. And at first they were resistant, but the word of God began to get in. It always does. It's living and powerful. And it always, as long as we represent it properly, it always gets in and begins to dispel darkness until a person often gets saved. But I like what John said in first, his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 14. He said, I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Guys, those thoughts go together. You will never overcome the wicked one if the word of God does not abide in you strongly. I, I mean, it's Christianity 101. I don't know how else to say it. People are often look, looking for some profound insight into the Bible, a principle they, they've missed that will catapult them once learned into victorious, dynamic Christian living. It, it's not there. Every principle that will catapult you into dynamic, victorious Christian living is not hidden. It's right there out in the open. Look, God's truth is the only thing that can save and sanctify a person, which is why, listen, which is why the devil tries so hard to undermine and destroy it and has from the very beginning. This is a setup for next week's study, and we'll see if we have time to get into Genesis 3, where the first thing the devil did was to try to sow doubt in Eve's mind as, as to what God had actually said. Oh, did God really say Eve? Trying to sow doubt in Eve's mind about what God really said. He's doing that still today, by the way. There's a lot of characters out there who claim to represent God, often liberal professors and teachers and so on, who are undermining the veracity and authority of God's word in people's lives. They're telling people that, well, you know, you can't trust the Bible. It really isn't inerrant. The first five books weren't really written by Moses, but by five different priests. Uh, you know, that Isaiah is really not one book. It's two different books written by two different people. The first 27 chapters, one thing. The last, what, 39 or another? And they're destroying the faith of many. And to overcome this wickedness, we must be in the Word of God. Look, let me end by saying this. A few weeks ago, I said the world is a defiling place. That's obvious. And it's purposely been designed by the devil to be a um, perverted, defiling place. As we quoted 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. 
Everything in this world has been orchestrated by the God of this world, the devil, to appeal to the lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh, and the pride of life. These are not of the Father, John said, but are of the devil, the world. And because the devil is ramping up his attacks, as we're getting closer to Jesus' return, it means now more than ever, guys, we need to be in God's word like we have never been in God's word before. Reading it, studying it, memorizing it, and meditating upon it if we want to live sanctified, victorious lives in our walk with Jesus. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I'll close with this. In the Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress, which was one of our um, books of the quarter, right? In that Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress, there is a scene, and if you read the book, you know what I mean, there is a scene in which a terrible allegorical battle is portrayed between Apollyon, Satan, and Christian. I'll read you a portion. It says, and I quote, Then Apollyon, seeing his opportunity, began to close in on Christian, and wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall, and Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I'm sure of you now. And with that he had almost pressed him to death, so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was preparing to take his last blow, thereby making an end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand and caught his sword, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And with that gave him a dreadful thrust, which made him back away like someone who had received a mortal wound. When Christian saw this, he went at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And with that, Apollyon spread his dragon wings and sped away, so that Christian saw him no more for a time. End quote. Look, John Bunyan knew that spiritual warfare is waged in one by how effectively a Christian wields the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. A Christian who is separated from their sword is a defeated Christian. I don't know what else to say. It's that simple. And I like the way Bunyan phrased it. It wasn't until Christian's sword flew out of his hand that Apollyon began to press him where, Christians, where Christian thought he was a goner, where hope was gone, where he was feeling defeated and like this was it. Any Christian who is not in the word on a regular basis, if the devil has knocked your sword out of your hand through adversity or a love of the world or some, something else, and you're feeling disconnected from God, defeated, depressed, like all hope is gone in your life, your marriage, your family, whatever, your, your, whatever it is, the problem is you've allowed the devil to knock from your hand the very thing that will produce faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
He has separated you from your source. And when that happens, he can truly say, I am sure of you now. I got you. Now, what you need to do is ask God, Lord, tomorrow I've gotten away from the word. I've, I've gotten away from starting my day with the word. Tomorrow morning I ask for a fresh infusion of grace that I'm going to trust you that tomorrow morning I'm going to have that desire to get into the word first thing, come back into my heart. I'm going to trust you you're going to do it and see what God does. And then don't stop getting up every day and being in the Word. Or at some point in your day, you have a dedicated time where you're going to stop, sit, and read the Word. And a great way to do it is to read it and pray it. Oh, I love doing that. I'm reading the promise of God. I just stop and pray. All right, Lord, you promised me this. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to bring it to pass in my life. Guys, this is such an important concept that we be in the Word. And I'm not saying just a little bit. I'm talking about with our whole heart. I'm going to make this next quarter of our book be the one-year Bible. We're going to get a whole bunch of one-year Bibles. And then I want us, of course, you're not going to read the Bible in a quarter. But may it start a real good habit. A real good habit. So that by the end of 12 months, you will have read through the entire Bible one time. And may that be the beginning of a wonderful habit that every year you read through God's word at least once. Amen? Amen. Next week we'll look again at spiritual warfare and the victory that only the word of God can give to us. Father, we thank you for your word. It is living and powerful, Lord. It is it, it gives us your promises things that we need to cling to if we're going to have victory. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us so many great and precious promises. We ask that you would make us, Lord, so hungry for the word that we cannot think about not being in the word. That would be something we crave in our spirit. Something we have to feed ourselves with every day. Give us that kind of a heart, that kind of a voracious hunger for your word. And make us, Lord, what you want us to be, victorious people of God who go out into this dark world as lights, those that the devil cannot overcome, because, Lord Jesus, you overcame him, and we belong to you. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.